Hello and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 28. Manzikert. Before we begin, if you have been enjoying this podcast, I'd like to ask you to please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast. It would mean a lot to me and would help more people find the podcast. Thank you for listening. Well, here we are. Manzikert, 1071. One of the most important places and dates in Turkish history. Arguably, the most important place and date. You know, when I was still thinking of the idea of this podcast, I spent a long time thinking of where and how to start the story of the Turks. And for a long time, I was thinking of starting it here, in Manzikert, in 1071 because it was here that the gates of Anatolia were opened and the Turks entered their new homeland. Certain years just echo throughout Turkish history. 1453, 1514, 1876, 1923. But perhaps the most important of all of them is 1071. Because in many ways, This marks year zero of Turkish, as opposed to Turkic, history. The Turks of Anatolia, the people who would build the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum and the Ottoman Empire and the Republic of Turkey, really come from here, in some sense. So important is 1071 that when the new and gigantic Çamlıca Mosque in Istanbul was constructed in 2019, the minarets were designed to be 107.1 meters tall, an homage to the year that, in the eyes of many, the Turkish nation came to be born in Anatolia. And so today, we are going to discuss the Battle of Manzikert, and really welcome the Turks into the land that would be destined to be their homeland. Now last time, we left off with conflict beginning to arise between the Seljuk court in Esfahan and the Roman court in Constantinople. This conflict arose due to tensions between the Seljuk court, the Fatimid caliphs and their Shia vassals in Syria, and the Nawakia, the wild Turkmen nomads of Syria. Despite repeated Turkish raids into Anatolia, relations between the two great courts in Esfahan and Constantinople had actually been quite good for most of Alparslan's reign. But then, Emperor Romanos Theogenes, in an effort to stop the relentless raiding of Anatolia by the wild Turkmen, had made an alliance with the Nawakia. This prompted Alparslan to decide that the Nawakia had to be disciplined and that Seljuk power had to be enforced in Syria. And so, Alparslan in 1071 prepared an army to go out to bring the Nawakia and the Shia emir of Aleppo into line. Along the way, he had taken the Roman city of Manzikert before conquering northern Syria and marching back to Azerbaijan, quite happy to leave things there. 
so it is really interesting and important to note that the Battle of Manzikert, the great battle that traditionally is seen as the great defeat of the Romans by the Turks, actually began not because of implacable Seljuk hatred of the Roman Empire, but rather out of an essentially internal Seljuk political dispute. It was Alp Arslan's desire to bring people he saw as wayward vassals into line that ultimately led to the battle that would open Anatolia to the Turks and set into motion the events that would eventually lead to the fall of the Roman Empire itself. Which brings us back to the heroic lion. With his position in northern Syria secured, as summer 1071 set in, Alparslan marched back through the territory of Diyarbakir, ultimately intending to return to Azerbaijan and from there to central Iran. But as his hordes moved into Azerbaijan, urgent messengers came to the heroic lion from the west bearing shocking news. The emperor of the Romans, Romanos Theogenes, was marching east at the head of a massive army. See, the news of the fall of Manzikert in January 1071 had caused horror at the court in Constantinople. The great fortress city had withstood even Sultan Tuchrul, and it was absolutely critical to the defense of Anatolia from Turkish raiding. Emperor Romanos Theogenes had come to power with a mandate to stop the Turkmen, to defend the Anatolian homeland from this threat that had arisen in the east. This had been the whole point of his making a deal with the Nawakia. This had been why he had marched his armies east every year since gaining the purple. And now, after his deal with the Nawakia had antagonized Alparslan, the Seljuk court had come up against him. This was not just wild Turkmen, only somewhat under the control of the Sultan. This was the Sultan himself. I think Emperor Romanos must have realized in some sense that his deal with the Nawakia had backfired. And so, Emperor Romanos assembled a massive army to march east. Ibn al-Athir says that the army was 200,000 strong and composed of Greeks, Franks, Ohus, Russians, Pechenegs, Georgians, and others, the peoples of those lands. For his part, Matthew of Edessa writes, Now, when the emperor of the Byzantines, Theogenes, heard news of that divine wrath, he growled like a lion and ordered the entire multitude of his troops to assemble. Edicts were issued, and heralds were dispatched throughout all the western lands. It was a large muster, and an awesome multitude drawn from all of the lands of the Goths, all of the nation of the Bulgars, and all the distant islands, and from Cappadocia, and all Bithynia, from Cilicia, and Antioch, Trabazond, and those lands of the brave military from the entire house of the Armenians. The emperor also brought other troops of foreigners from Khuzestan. Indeed, Theogenes assembled an enormous multitude, as many troops as the sands of the sea. Now these numbers are clearly an exaggeration, and modern historians estimate the total army was likely around 80,000 strong. 
So as both Ibn al-Athir and Matthew of Edessa confirm, the army was composed not just of Greek Byzantine soldiers, but Latin mercenaries, Viking Normans, and the Viking Varangian Guard, Bulgarians, Armenians, and reportedly even Turks and Arabs. And crucially for our story, it also included large numbers of Pechenegs, that Ohuric Turkic people who, as we discussed back in episode 16, the Ohus had driven from the steppes of Central Asia, westwards through Ukraine and the Balkans, and into the territories of the Roman Empire. As I said then, this began a centuries-long relationship between the Pechenegs and the Empire, one that included both revolts and alliance, peace and war, friendship and enmity. Well, now their descendants are riding east for a rematch against the Ohus. This great army assembled in Constantinople and began marching east, through Sivas, and coming eventually to Erzurum. There, Emperor Romanos ordered the troops to provision themselves for a long march through difficult terrain, whereupon the army left Erzurum, marching south towards Lake Van. The emperor hoped to retake the area around the lake, including reconquering Manzikert itself. Meanwhile, Alparslan had received word that the Emperor of the Romans was leading the Byzantine army towards the oh-so-recently-conquered fortress city of Manzikert. Ibn al-Athir says that the Sultan was in Khoi, a city in southern Azerbaijan just to the east of Lake Van, when he heard the news of the Emperor's approach. But Alparslan was not able to summon all of his men quickly. The tribes had dispersed among the pasturages of Azerbaijan, or else they had been left behind in northern Syria with Melik Shah to keep an eye on the Nawakia and ensure compliance of the local Arab emirs. Ibn al-Athir says that Alparslan was able to raise a mere 15,000 men. And while this might be a bit of an exaggeration, it seems likely that Seljuk forces numbered no more than 30,000 at the very most. Certainly, a far smaller force than that of the approaching Byzantine army. Alparslan sent Nizam-ul-Mulk off to rush back to Hamadan to raise further troops from central Iran. Reportedly, Alparslan told his men as they set off to face the Romans, I shall fight for my future reward in heaven and with true endurance. If I survive, then that is by the grace of God Almighty. But if I die a martyr, my son Melik Shah is my heir. And so, the Seljuk army, under the heroic lion, began riding towards Manzikert on a collision course with Emperor Romanos Theogenes. For his part, Emperor Romanos wanted to wrap this campaign up quickly, to retake Manzikert and reinstall a Roman garrison before returning back home. He was above all worried that the army would not be able to stay in the field in these regions for an extended period of time without provisions. If you'll recall from last episode, it was the lack of provisions that had ultimately forced him to return from Menbich. Running low on supplies this far east would be a disaster. Michael Ataliatis, who was actually there in person, tells us that it was for this reason 
that Emperor Romanos took the fateful and much-criticized decision to divide the army. He wanted to operate quickly, to remove the Turks from Manzikert and then return home. A small force would be less likely to deplete the resources of the army and the countryside, and it should be sufficient to overwhelm the relatively small Turkish garrison at Manzikert. But because the emperor had reports that Alparsan was approaching, Emperor Romanos decided to keep the remainder of the army nearby, where he could call upon it if required. Ataliates writes, It was with this in mind that the emperor divided his armies. He hoped to subject Manzikert as quickly as possible, in which he succeeded, and to spend as little time putting its affairs in order and so return home. The emperor therefore took one portion of the army, including many Pechenegs, and began marching east for Manzikert. The other portion he put under the control of a Norman general named Roussel de Bayou and a Byzantine general named Joseph Tarkaniotis. This army was sent off to capture the town of Ahlat on Lake Van itself, further to the south. Now, as I said, this decision has been much criticized because it weakened the Roman advantage in numbers. Instead of an army approximately 80,000 strong fighting a Turkish force roughly 15,000 to 30,000 strong, the emperor's army itself would now be no more than 50,000 strong at the very most, and likely less than that. Not nearly enough of a numerical advantage to overcome the prowess of the steppe riders. And moreover, the units broken off to take Alat were the better of the units available to Romanos. Normans and seasoned Latin mercenaries from the west under Roussel de Bayou, and under John Tarkaniotis, the famous Viking Varangian guard, the better of the Armenian infantry, and several contingents of fearsome Pecheneg steppe riders. These units marched off to the south and the west, leaving the emperor with an inferior force marching east and south to take Manzikert. And critically, the force that Emperor Romanos had remaining with him was relatively heavy on Pecheneg cavalry. Perhaps the emperor thought that you need steppe warriors to fight steppe warriors. Or perhaps he thought that their ability to live off the herds would be useful in a campaign where he was concerned about running low on supplies. Like I said, Emperor Romano seems to have thought that taking Manzikert would be a cakewalk, following which he would be able to then reunite with the rest of his armies. And he thought that a small force would be more mobile, less likely to deplete the resources of the army and the countryside, and would be sufficient to overwhelm the relatively small Turkish garrison at Manzikert. But it also appears that while he had reports that Seljuk forces were in the region, he actually did very little on-the-ground reconnaissance, which I think amounts to gross negligence. As the emperor marched towards Manzikert, John Tarkaniotis linked up with Roussel de Bayou, and together they began moving towards Ahlat. But they were soon intercepted by Alp Arslan's forces. According to Ibn al-Athir, the Byzantine force was about 10,000 strong and was composed primarily of Viking Varangian guards, who he calls Russians. On they marched, and when he, 
Alparslan drew near the enemy, he organized an advance guard, which clashed near Ahlat with the commander of the Russians at the head of about 10,000 Byzantines. After an engagement, the Russians fled, and their commander was taken prisoner and taken to the Sultan, who cut off his nose and sent him with the booty to Nizam ul Mulk. The latter was ordered to send him to Baghdad. After this small engagement, the Byzantine forces under John Tarkaniotis and Roussel de Bayou immediately began a quick retreat westwards towards the city of Malatya. Inexplicably, they do not appear to have informed the emperor. They simply rode off back to the west, and again, these were among the better units of the Roman army, including most of the famed and fearsome Varangian Guard. Emperor Romanos had no idea that the armies that he was depending on for support in the event of trouble were now out of the region and off the board. In a stroke, and without really incurring any losses, the Seljuks had removed almost half of the Roman army from the field. The Seljuks now had a clear advantage against the lone Byzantine force in the region, the remnants of the army under Romanos Theogenes, that was unknowingly marching unsupported towards Manzikert. Emperor Romanos reached Manzikert in late August 1071. He established a military encampment along the banks of a small river just to the northeast of the city, a tributary of the river Morat, itself a tributary of the Euphrates. Ataliates tells us that in order to provision the army, innumerable flocks and herds of animals were brought into the camp. Perhaps these were the herds of the Pechenegh contingents of the army. Certainly, they were a desirable target for Turkish raiders who literally measured wealth in animals. Emperor Romanos thereupon inspected the city, riding around its walls, looking for a place to strike. With a weak point selected, on August 23, 1071, the emperor ordered an assault against the relatively small Turkish garrison holding the city. Manzikert quickly fell. The vastly outnumbered Turkish garrison didn't really stand a chance. Michael Ataliates relates, The Armenian infantry attacked the wall outside the citadel, and after many attempts took it in one sudden assault around sunset. The emperor, of course, was elated by this turn of events. Envoys then came from the enemy, begging that he be merciful to them, spare their property, and if they could obtain such an agreement, they would hand the city over to him. Emperor Romanos agreed, and the Seljuk garrison was allowed to leave. A Roman garrison was then installed in its place, and a Roman general put in charge of Manzikert. Manzikert, the city that had withstood even the great Sultan Tuchrol, the city guarding the east from the Turks, was now back in Roman hands. The emperor returned triumphant to the Byzantine camp. Ataliates tells us, on returning to the camp, he was greeted by hums of praise, acclamations, and cries of triumph. They would turn out to be premature. Emperor Romanos then began to prepare to march towards Ahlat to assist the armies of Roussel de Bayou and John Tarkaniotis. Again, 
he had no idea that their armies had been entirely driven out of the region by the Seljuks. But as he was prepared to march south and west towards Lake Van and Ahlat, he received word that a Seljuk force was fast approaching. Having defeated the Byzantine army near Ahlat, and having driven Roussel de Bayou and John Tarkaniotis back to the west, Alparslan was now approaching Manzikert from the south. The vanguard of Alparslan's army reached the vicinity of Manzikert on August 24, 1071, the very day after the fall of the city. The Seljuk vanguard quickly overwhelmed a small Roman force patrolling the region and hunting for supplies. Ataliates writes, But news began to arrive that enemy forces from somewhere were attacking the soldiers' servants who were out gathering the loot, harassing and wearing them out. As one report followed upon another, the emperor thought that one of the sultan's officers had come up with a small detachment and was assaulting and roughing up the Roman servants that they found wandering around. To deal with what he clearly thought to be a small contingent of Turks, as opposed to the vanguard of an actual Seljuk army, Emperor Romanos assembled a contingent of his army, likely composed of Armenian and Greek cavalry, and put it under the control of a nobleman named Nikephoros Vrienios. Vrienios was a capable commander, indeed, considered by his contemporaries to be one of the best tacticians and generals of his day. But he was also a rival of the emperor, who, remember, was himself a top general who had been given the purple with a mandate to stop Turkish raiding. Vrienios led his contingent out to confront what he still seemed to think was a small Turkish force but he was quickly defeated by the Seljuk vanguard, who fought using the traditional steppe tactics of hit-and-run attacks by mounted nomad archers. Michael Ataliates writes, He, Vrienios, took his stand in the front lines and attempted some missile skirmishing and cavalry fighting, but with uncertain results, for they were fighting each other in small groups. In this confusing melee, the Turks were shooting from a distance, wounding many Romans and killing others. These Turks were more courageous than the others we had experienced as they charged more boldly and stood up to their opponents in hand-to-hand combat. The result was a rout of Rienios's forces. The contingent fled back to the main camp that Emperor Romanos had constructed, and Vrienios began begging for reinforcements. But the emperor did not yet realize that he was facing the sultan's main army which was rapidly approaching. So instead of just handing more troops over to Vrienios, who again, he might not have trusted entirely, Romano sent out a division of Armenian soldiers under the command of two Armenian commanders, one named Khatap and one named Vasilak, or Vasilakes in Greek. These contingents marched out of the camp to confront the Seljuks, who again, the emperor thought were just a small force, not the vanguard of Alparslan's whole army. But even though they were larger than Vrienios's original force, these two Roman contingents were no match for the Turkish steppe riders. Matthew of Edessa writes, He, Romanos, designated as military commanders of his troops, the Armenian princes Khatap and Vasilak, brave and martial men, 
and there was fierce fighting for much of that day. The troops of the Byzantines were defeated, and Khatap and Vasilak were killed. Michael Ataliates provides us with a bit more detail, and implies that the Byzantine forces were drawn into one of the famous, feigned retreats of the Turks, but when Vrienios realized what was happening, he ordered his troops to stop and pull back so as not to run into the ambush, but the Armenian commanders did not do likewise. Instead, they rushed into the trap and were destroyed. Ataliates writes of the fall of Vasilak. As they came to the enemy camp, Vasilakis's horse was wounded and he fell to the ground, dragged down by the weight of his armor. The enemy surrounded him and took him alive. According to some sources, Vrienios then marched forwards following the ambush. When he came to the place where the Armenian forces had been destroyed, a wounded survivor told him of the disaster that had befallen them. At that very moment, the Seljuks charged down, and it was only with great skill and luck that Vrienios was able to organize a disciplined retreat, saving a large part of his force, even if the Armenian divisions had been largely eradicated. As the Seljuk vanguard broke off the charge and returned to the south, towards the rapidly approaching army of Alparsan, Vrienios and his troops fled back to the Roman camp. As the remnants of the army limped back into the Roman camp, it began to dawn on the emperor and the Roman troops the size of the force they were in fact facing. Total panic erupted in the camp. Ataliates, who remember, was actually there in person, writes, When news of this reached the emperor and the army, fear and an expectation of danger overwhelmed the Romans, as also the wounded were being brought in on stretchers, and they were groaning from the pain of their wounds. And so, Emperor Romanos rode out of the camp with a large contingent looking for the Turks. As evening began to fall, he made for the high hills to the north of Manzikert, hoping to get a view of the plain below him to understand the size of the force opposing him. But as the sky darkened, Emperor Romanos could not see the movements of the Turks on the plains below, so he returned to the camp to brood and to think of what he could possibly do. Emperor Romanos must have by now realized that this was not a minor party of Turkish raiders, but a great army, perhaps even the Sultan himself. He knew the dire situation he had gotten himself into. He had already weakened his army by sending a large force off to Athat, and then he had weakened his position further by sending two sorties out, both of whom were then defeated. Instead of husbanding his forces and using them all at once in a great engagement, he had inadvertently allowed the numerically inferior Seljuks to defeat smaller contingents of his army one at a time. Though still, he had no knowledge of the fact that Roussel de Bayou and John Tarkaniotis and their armies had fled to Malatya and were completely out of the picture. As night fell over Manzikert, and Emperor Romano sat in his fortified encampment outside its walls, Alp Arslan drew his army up on the plains to the south of the city. Moving under the cover of darkness, Alp Arslan decided to launch a night attack on the Roman encampment. Perhaps he could spook the Romans, maybe even cart off some of the goods in the herds kept behind the stockade walls. And so, 
he sent off a Seljuk contingent toward the fortified encampment in the moonless night. Meanwhile, and completely fortuitously, a company of Pechenegs happened to be outside the walls of the Roman camp. The Roman sources say that they were engaged in business with some local merchants, which would not be uncommon in a medieval military camp. Merchants often followed armies on the move, trading in military supplies, provisions, and slaves. Suddenly, while they were thus engaged, a Seljuk force appeared and attacked the Pechenegs and the merchants. Caught completely unawares, the Pechenegs panicked and fled back into the encampment. This caused total pandemonium to break out, as the Romans in the camp thought that the Pechenegs fleeing to the camp were in fact the attacking Turks. Remember that the Pechenegs and the Turks were both Turkic peoples, who therefore looked and sounded pretty similar to the Romans. And it was nighttime, in an era without electricity, so it was impossible to see what was happening or who was who. Confusion reigned. Ataliates relates what he saw. Then, as if ex machina, the Turks poured out and violently charged the Scythians outside the camp, by which he means the Pechenegs, and those selling army supplies. With inarticulate howling and shooting of arrows, they rode around terrifying them, placing them in a tight spot so that the victims of the attack were forced to run inside the palisade. All jammed together, one after another, as they were being chased and pressed into the entranceway, which caused tremendous confusion among those inside because they thought it was a full-scale attack by the enemy and that the whole camp and all their equipment would be captured, for it was a moonless night and you could not tell who was fleeing and who was pursuing or who belonged to the other side. The Scythian mercenaries, moreover, resembled the Turks in all respects, which made the situation that night all the more confusing. The Seljuks thus launched a night assault against the camp as the defenders panicked, with the Romans unable to tell their Pechenegs allies from their Turkish foes. Amidst the chaos and violence, volleys of Seljuk arrows rained down among the defenders as the Seljuks attacked the walls of the encampment. Now the Seljuk forces did not attempt to sack the camp as they knew that the moment was not opportune. Nevertheless, they kept up the pressure all night, riding around the camp, bellowing their war cries, firing arrows, and launching sorties against the walls. These attacks not only terrified the Roman army, but kept the soldiers awake, sleepless, and exhausted on the night before one of the most important battles in human history. Ataliates writes, Everyone spent the night with their eyes wide open and sleepless. As the sun rose on the morning of August 26, 1071, the Seljuk army assembled on the plains in front of the exhausted and demoralized Roman camp. As his army was assembling, Alparslan sent further troops to harass and provoke the Romans, further demoralizing the army, and broke off a detachment and sent it to stand between the Roman encampment and the river, hoping to deny the Byzantines water before what was sure to be a great battle. While the Byzantines were able to assemble troops to clear the Turks out of the area of the encampment and thus regain access to the water and stop their relentless Turkish harassment, morale was now very low. And then 
an even greater blow came to the Romans. Alpar Slan sent envoys off to the Pechenegs and managed to induce the defection of a commander of a large number of the Pechenegs troops. This leader, named Tomush, and his men were unhappy with not being paid on time and no doubt furious that the Romans had confused them with the Turks the prior night and attacked them, and he probably also saw which way the wind was blowing here. As a steppe people, indeed as speakers of fellow Turkic languages, the Pechenegs and the Turks understood how to deal with each other very well, which of course was immeasurably helpful to Alpar Slan in inducing their defection. This caused immense consternation in the Roman army. They had now lost a large portion of their own steppe riders that they depended on to fight the Turks, and it made them further doubt the loyalty of the remaining Pechenegs. As Ataliates writes, they suspected that the rest of the people, the Pechenegs, whose way of life was so similar to that of the Turks, might join them and fight on their side. To allay these fears, the remaining Pechenegh leaders came out to make a show of loyalty to the emperor. Indeed, Ataliates himself seems to have recommended this. He writes, Wanting to lift the suspicion that hovered over the Scythians, I myself advised the emperor to bind them with an oath. He accepted my advice, and right away appointed me to execute and oversee the matter. According to Ataliates, not one of the remaining Pechenegs deserted during the coming disaster. But as we will come to see, this may be a bit of revisionist history by Ataliates, trying to make himself look good, and the Roman army was understandably not entirely comforted by this show of loyalty, and morale sank lower. Emperor Romanos was now desperate. He surveyed his options. While he could theoretically ride his army into Manzikert, he knew that he lacked the provisions to actually hold out against a long siege. But he did have a numerical advantage, and therefore, if he was going to fight, he wanted to bring the enemy to battle in the field quickly, not waste his troops in small sorties, a strategy that had already caused immense harm. But at the same time, he was hoping for reinforcements and trying to delay. He had sent messengers off to Roussel de Bayou and John Tarkaniotis, and he was still hoping that they would return. He had no knowledge that they had ridden off to Malatya and were not capable of coming to his aid. Furthermore, the emperor knew that he could not raise another army of this size. The treasury in Constantinople just could not bear that expense, given the present fiscal crisis that the state was in. So maybe it was better to make an attempt now, while he still had the numerical advantage. Perhaps he could defeat the sultan himself and stop the Turkish raiding of Anatolia. Meanwhile, Alparslan himself was also unsure. As he surveyed the scene, he realized that he was in a strong position, but not an overwhelmingly strong position. Even in its weakened state, the Roman army still outnumbered the Seljuk army by a substantial margin. Victory on the field could not be assured. And in any event, he had no real quarrel with the emperor of the Romans. Yeah, he was very, very upset that Romanos had come to a deal with the Nawakia, so mad that he had ripped up their prior peace treaty. But now that the Nawakia had been disciplined and the emir of Aleppo had been dealt with, 
Now that the Fatimid heretics were on the back foot, and the cities of the Levant were falling to his son Melik Shah and his Turkmen, there was no reason that he could not make a new peace treaty with Emperor Romanos. Indeed, his strong position here was an optimal negotiating position. And so Alparslan sent off messengers to Emperor Romanos to see what kind of deal could be struck. And honestly, this would have been, and should have been, the most likely outcome. A new peace treaty, struck between Esfahan and Constantinople, between the Emperor of the Romans and the Heroic Lion. But it just didn't happen. We don't know exactly why, as our histories conflict, but it is clear that the Romans rejected Alparslan's offer to make peace. Michael Ataliates was of course actually there, unlike Ibn al-Athir, which makes his account more interesting, but also somewhat unreliable, because he of course has a vested interest in excusing himself from the coming catastrophe. Ataliates essentially says that the emperor was not overly friendly with the emissaries from Alparslan, and that some of his more hot-headed advisors persuaded him that Alparslan was stalling to get more reinforcements, and therefore, he should reject this offer for a peace treaty and attack while he still had the numerical advantage. Ataliates says that he personally tried to persuade the emperor to accept the peace offer, but to no avail. Ibn al-Athir, for his part, says that the Romans demanded that Alparslan cede to them essentially all of Iran up to the city of Rey, which does seem a little bit preposterous to me. I just don't think that they would have demanded something so ridiculous. But maybe that was the manner in which they rejected Alparslan's offer to make peace. According to Michael Ataliates, the Romans sounded the war trumpets while the Seljuk emissaries were still in the encampment trying to come to a treaty. While the Turks, for their part, were trying to negotiate for peace, the emperor had the war trumpets sounded and so unreasonably opted for the battle din. When the news of this reached the enemy, they were astounded. The Turkish emissaries thus fled back to Alparslan as the Roman army mustered for war. When his emissaries returned bearing news that his offer to make peace had been rejected, and as he heard the Roman war trumpets and saw the armies of the Emperor of the Romans assembling on the plains, Alparslan prepared for battle. He led the men in prayer and reportedly said to them, Whoever wishes to depart, let him depart, for here there is no sultan to command and forbid. According to Ibn al-Athir, he then threw down his bow and arrows and took up his sword and mace. He tied his horse's tail with his own hand, and his army did likewise. He put on white, anointed his body, and said, If I am killed, then this is my winding sheet. That is the white sheet in which Muslims wrap the dead before burial. Emperor Romanos, meanwhile, assembled his armies. On his left wing, he placed those Pecheneg troops who remained loyal, along with some other auxiliaries and some of the Roman imperial Tagmata troops from the western themes of the empire. This left wing was placed under the command of Vrienios. On his right wing, he placed the imperial Tagmata troops from the eastern themes and a contingent of Ohu's Turkish mercenaries. This wing was placed under the command of a general named Theodore Aliates, the Strategos of the Cappadocian theme. In the center, he placed the remainder of the Byzantine heavy cavalry that had not been sent off to Ahlat, the remainder of the Tagmata troops, 
a heavy contingent of the remaining Varangian guard, and several contingents of Armenian heavy infantry. He took the command of the center himself. But knowing full well the tactics of the Turks, having fought against them for years, the emperor also knew that he needed a strong rear guard. This rear guard could shore up any of the lines that weakened, riding in to face down a Turkish breakthrough. It would also act as a backstop to a total rout. And so he placed behind his army a strong rearguard composed primarily of cavalry, imperial bodyguards, contingents of noblemen, cavalry from eastern Anatolia, Latin mercenary heavy cavalry, and a few divisions of Tagmata cavalry. And in one of the greatest mistakes, in a campaign now riddled with mistakes, he put this rear guard under the command of a man named Andronicus Ducas. Andronicus was a relative of the emperor, but also a rival, and a man who had previously been involved in a plot against the emperor. Therefore, the most critical part of the Roman army had been placed in unreliable hands. Against this force, Alp Arslan arrayed his men in the traditional steppe formation. His men assembled in a crescent, with a strong center guard and two wings swooping outwards on either side towards the enemy. This crescent was designed to catch them like a trap. The Turkmen tribes, as always, were placed in this formation in small groups, small groups that could break off from the main formation to conduct hit-and-run attacks before regrouping and rejoining. In the center, Alparslan also placed small contingents of Kurdish and Bedouin Arab troops that he had brought along with him. Instead of leading from the front lines, the Sultan rode to the rear of the center, riding up to a small hill with his bodyguard. From there, he could see the battlefield and issue commands to his troops. And as the heroic lion stood on this hill, surveying the plains of Manzikert, he saw the Roman army begin to march forwards. The Roman army advanced quickly across the plain, with the rear guard under Ducas maintaining a distance from the front lines in order to ride in in support as required. As the Roman army moved forward, Alparslan ordered the two wings of the Turkish army to attack, and the two wings rushed forward, sniping at the Romans in hit-and-run attacks, harrying the advancing left and right wings of the Roman army. In response, Emperor Romanos ordered a full-on frontal assault, urging his troops to advance quickly to make direct contact with the center of the Turkish army, hoping, in this way, that his numerical advantage would win the day. As the Roman army marched forward, Alparslan ordered a disciplined and organized retreat of the center. He was determined to not allow the Romans to make direct contact and force hand-to-hand combat on his troops. His armies excelled as mounted archers, not when they were forced into fighting hand-to-hand. And furthermore, as always, steppe nomads did not mind retreating to gain a tactical advantage. But Alp Arslan also ordered his two wings to keep up the pressure, and they rode forward, harrying the left and right wings of the Roman army. As a result, the Roman army became stretched. In the center, the army under the command of the emperor began to outstrip the wings, 
and itself began to become disordered under the rapid advance. Certain units began pulling in front of others. No doubt, this was made worse by the exhaustion and the sleep deprivation of the troops. But still, the Roman army pushed forward. Alparslan ordered that the Seljuk camp be abandoned and that the army continue its organized retreat, protected by the continuing attacks from the wings. By late afternoon, the Byzantines came upon the Seljuk camp, but finding it deserted, they continued to advance further. Roman losses were still minimal by this point, but the army was becoming increasingly disorganized and frustrated. Annoyed and frustrated by the Turkish tactic of retreating and the constant arrow fire, the lightning hit-and-run attacks, group of Byzantine troops began to charge off to confront the Turks. But of course, they only just fell victim to the tactic of the feigned retreat. As small groups of Romans detached from the main army to be led off into ambushes, the Byzantine lines, particularly on the wings, which were already disordered, became increasingly ragged. An army that had started the day with compact lines was fracturing into small groups along increasingly extended lines, constantly harassed by the wings of the Turkish army and marching towards a mounted foe in the center that was retreating in order, always just out of range. Only the center of the Roman army remained relatively coherent, and everywhere the Seljuk wings were striking, unleashing a storm of arrows on the increasingly disordered and frustrated army in hit-and-run attacks. As dusk began to fall, Emperor Romanos realized that he had to turn back. The army had to regroup before night fell. Now this maneuver was normally not that difficult to pull off, and Romanos himself had done it before while facing Turkish troops. But that was with an army with compact lines, not an army in a disorganized and extended state like his. And so fatefully, Romanos ordered that the imperial standard be turned around, the signal to the troops to begin to retreat. As his own troops in the center began to turn around in the failing light, the troops along the now-extended lines misinterpreted the turning of the imperial standard and the retreat of the emperor's troops in the center, particularly the troops on the Roman wings. These troops, whose nerves were already frayed, and who themselves were totally exhausted and sleep-deprived, took it to be a signal for retreat, not an orderly withdrawal. And certain heavy infantry troops, particularly the Armenians, believed that the emperor himself had fallen. Panic began erupting in the lines as the sun began to set, and disorder began to erupt among the Roman troops. Now at this moment, the rear guard under Ducas should have swept in to restore order and secure the retreat. And had he done so, it is entirely likely that the lines would have been stabilized and the retreat accomplished. But instead, Ducas, who, remember, was a rival of the emperor and whose family harbored ambitions for the throne, spread the rumor that the emperor, Romanos Theogenes, had fallen. Instead of rushing to the aid of the Emperor of the Romans, he ordered a retreat of the rear guard. Seeing the rear guard begin to retreat and seeing disorder spread in the center, the right wing broke 
and began a chaotic retreat. Matthew of Edessa reports that at this point, the Pechenegh troops themselves deserted to the Seljuks, but we just can't be sure. Indeed, many other sources, including Michael Ataliates, say that the majority of the Pechenegh troops remained loyal. As disorder spread among the army, Emperor Romanos desperately attempted to order his troops to return to bolster the center. But it was too late. His divisions in the center were exposed as the flanks broke and ran, and as his own disorganized and ragged lines finally broke down. Seeing this disorder in the Roman army, Alparslan, the heroic lion, ordered a full frontal assault. The retreat of the Seljuk center stopped, and the army turned around and began a great charge forward. On the wings, the Turkish forces surged forward, cutting down fleeing Byzantine troops. The right wing of the Roman army collapsed totally, fleeing in terror and disorder. The left wing, under Vrienios, put up a stiffer fight but was ultimately not able to resist, though Vrienios was able to maintain a somewhat orderly retreat as opposed to a total rout. The wings of the Turkish army now turned inwards, the two sides of the crescent coming together to meet in the center. The Seljuk army encircled what remained of the Roman center. The emperor of the Romans, Romanos Theogenes, was now trapped. Michael Italiates writes in horror what he saw. It was like an earthquake, with howling, grief, sudden fear, clouds of dust, and finally, herds of Turks riding around us. To the extent that his speed, eagerness, and strength permitted, each man sought safety in flight. The enemy chased us, killing some, capturing some, and trampling others underfoot. It was a terribly sad sight, beyond lament and mourning. For what could be more pitiable than the entire imperial army in flight, defeated and chased by inhuman and cruel barbarians? The emperor, defenseless and surrounded by armed barbarians, and the tents of the emperor, the officers, and the soldiers, overtaken by men of that ilk. And to see the whole Roman state overturned, and knowing that the empire itself might collapse in a moment. Emperor Romanos put up a courageous and vigorous fight as the sun set but to no avail. The Turks pressed in around him from all sides as the center collapsed. Eventually, as night fell, the emperor surrendered and was captured alive. According to Ibn al-Athir, a Turkish Mameluk took him prisoner and was about to kill him before one of Romanos' servants intervened, screaming out, Do not kill him! It is the emperor! For the first time since the capture of Emperor Valerian over 800 years earlier, a Roman emperor had been taken prisoner by a foreign enemy. Ataliates says he spent the night sleeping on the ground with the troops as waves of misery washed over him. In the morning, Emperor Romanos Theogenes was brought before Sultan Alparslan. The emperor was treated with all due respect and honor. Seemingly astonished, Ataliates writes, it was with such an awareness of their human fallibility and with a level-headedness that the Turks reacted to their victory, neither boasting loudly, as people tend to do when things go their way, nor ascribing the deed to their own powers. But rather, they ascribed the whole thing to God as a feat that surpassed their own power to accomplish. Sultan Alparslan, the heroic lion, 
then embraced the emperor of the Romans. He ordered that a tent be prepared for him, along with attendants, and invited him to dine with him. Alparslan then asked Emperor Romanos Theogenes, If our places were reversed, what would you have done to me? Perhaps feeling that honesty was the best policy, the emperor responded, Know that I would have inflicted much torture on your body. Alparslan responded, My punishment is far heavier. I forgive you and set you free. After spending eight days with the Seljuk court, Alparslan released Emperor Romanos Theogenes. He was sent off with all of his noble retainers, including Michael Italiates, and given a Turkish horse, armor, and gifts. He rode back to Manzikert, collected his army, and returned to the west, to a Roman Empire now descending into civil war. Likely, it was for this reason that Alparslan had released him, knowing that it would contribute to the breakdown of order in Byzantium, and hoping that he could maybe help Romano stay on the throne, now as an ally of the great Seljuk Empire. The Battle of Manzikert has long been acknowledged as one of the most important battles in history. Even at the time, it was pointed to as the moment that Anatolia was lost to the Roman Empire. The medieval Roman sources point to it as an unmitigated disaster. The battle at which the eastern armies were destroyed and Anatolia was lost forever. Some later sources even go further, saying that as Anatolia was now irretrievably lost, it was inevitable that the Roman Empire itself would fall. That 1453 is the logical consequence of 1071. But that is a bit reductionist and an oversimplification. The Roman Empire would endure, albeit in a permanently weakened state, and nothing that ended up happening was preordained. But while it is an exaggeration to say that Manzikert doomed the Roman Empire, the political consequences were truly momentous. In the civil war that followed, Byzantium was greatly weakened. Throughout the Mediterranean world, the news of the defeat was a grievous blow to the Roman reputation. The Normans, seeing the dire situation of the empire, attacked in the west, further weakening the state and leading to virtually whatever troops remained in the east being withdrawn. This meant that the Roman state now had no ability to stop the Turks from flooding into Anatolia. And as we will see in coming episodes, this coincided with the rise of Nizam ul-Mulk, who transformed the Seljuk state into a much more Persian-style sedentary state. This caused the already tense relationship between the Seljuk court and the tribes to further deteriorate. As their relationship with the court and the central state worsened, the tribes were increasingly pushed further to the fringes of the empire, just as the collapse of the Byzantine frontier and civil war in the Roman Empire removed the only obstacle to Turkish migration into Anatolia. Thus, the gates were opened, and Turkmen tribes rushed onto the plateau, a land that happened to be perfectly suited to the nomadic lifestyle. There they began to not only graze their herds, but began to establish a new state, what would come to be called the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. And so it was that at Manzikert, the Turkish nation found its home, the homeland 
that it still occupies to this day. But we will leave the story of the Turks in Anatolia for a later episode, when we finally dive into the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. And next time, we will close out the story of Alparslan, the heroic lion who had opened Anatolia to his people as he rides east to his doom. And we will really introduce the man who will lead the great Seljuk Empire to the zenith of its power and prosperity, though in doing so, pave the way for its destruction. The man who will rule behind the scenes during the reign of Alparslan's son Melik Shah, the Persian Grand Vizier Nizam ul-Mulk. Mm-hmm.